Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, through the book of Second Thessalonians. Uh, there was church in the New Testament uh, at Thessalonica, and the Apostle Paul wrote two letters uh, to the Thessalonians, and in this new sermon series, we're going to be looking at the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. Uh, for those of you who've been part of New City for a while, uh, if you are part of us through the pandemic, uh, you might remember that when, we be- when the pandemic kind of hit us, we walked through a sermon series on the first book of Thessalonians. Uh, this was exactly three years ago, May 2020, if I remember right. We began uh, us and walked through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians through a sermon series. And the theme of, of that sermon series, if you remember, was waiting well. Waiting well. The Christian life is a long season of waiting eagerly and with much anticipation for Jesus to come back again. And if you remember from the sermon series in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians, each of the five chapters of that book makes a very direct reference to the second coming of Christ Jesus. And that's a reminder to us that this world does not make sense. It does not completely add up. However good lives we may be living or however difficult lives, whatever season we may be in, at any given point of time, deep down, we all know that this life does not wholly add up. Our sorrows, our brokenness, death, these things just don't add up. But the Bible assures us that the world will not remain broken forever. Christ is going to come back again. And when he comes back again, he's going to make the world beautiful and perfect all over again. Every ache in your heart and mind will be gone. The only thing we will know is joy as we see Jesus face to face. The book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, both books are a powerful reminder of this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so the second coming of Jesus is a reminder not to live as if this life is everything. And it is also a reminder not to live as if this life is nothing. There are two errors. Sometimes we live as if this life is everything. We rarely think beyond. All we want is here and now. And we lose sight of eternity. This is when we assimilate with the world. We become one with the world, forgetting the distinction we have as followers of Jesus. At other times, we live as if this life is nothing. We just get so dejected, so disappointed, so crushed, disinterested. And this is when we isolate ourselves. So the book of 2 Thessalonians and the first book also encourages us not to live as if this life is everything, not to live as if this life is nothing. 
in this season, you and I and every follower of Jesus is called to wait meaningfully, is called to wait with anticipation for Christ to come back. And this waiting is it's not passive waiting. It's not unproductive waiting. This is active and fruitful waiting. This waiting is not a lazy, disinterested waiting, but this is a highly purposeful waiting. And the defining, the defining aspect of our waiting for Christ to come back again is our growing in maturity in Christ Jesus. And that's the theme of the sermon. That's the theme uh, that the Apostle Paul begins the book of 2 Thessalonians with. And that's what we're going to be looking at tomorrow, today. Measuring a maturity in Christ. Uh, this week we're going to look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. Next week we'll look at the remaining uh, chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. I'm going to request Sarita to read the passage for us. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me give us a little bit of background context uh, before we dive into the sermon. Uh, the people of Thessalonica were vicious in persecuting followers of Jesus. Uh, there's a book in the New Testament called the Acts of the Apostles. And in chapter 17 of that book, uh, we can see a very vivid picture of how vicious the people of Thessalonica were in persecuting followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, on his missionary journey, he first came to Philippi, he planted a church there, and then he moved to Thessalonica. And while at Thessalonica, uh, Acts chapter 17 tells us that for three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with the Jews uh, 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 in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Son of God. He is the promised Savior for all peoples. Many people believed in Jesus, but those who did not believe caused a huge riot in the city, persecuting Paul. 
they persecuted Paul so much that he had to leave Thessalonica and move away to Berea. The Thessalonians were so vicious, they did not leave things there. They were just, they were not happy enough that Paul had left Thessalonica. They followed Paul to Berea. Paul had then gone to Berea to preach the gospel there. They followed Paul to Berea with a mob and they caused a riot in Berea. And Paul had to literally flee from Berea and he moved on to, to Athens. That's how vicious the people in Thessalonica were. Paul left, but the believers who had come to faith in Thessalonica, they remained there, and they started a church, even though the persecution continued. And so, the apostle Paul wrote these two letters to the church of Thessalonica, encouraging them to persevere through all the persecution, assuring them that when Christ comes again, all their troubles will be gone and their faith will be richly rewarded with eternal life in Jesus. This is the context. Paul is calling a persecuted church. Paul is calling a young and a persecuted church to grow in maturity in Christ even through these persecutions. For us, as we uh, read through a significant part of the first chapter of the book, we're going to look at two ways in which we measure, we can measure our maturity in Christ. Someone is going to give you two tests that you can apply to your own heart to, to gauge and measure your maturity in Christ. The first test that I have for us is simply this. Are we growing in our faith, love, and hope in times of hardship? Are we growing in our faith, love, and hope in times of hardship? Paul begins his second letter to the Thessalonians by applauding them for the way they are growing in their faith in Christ and in their love for one another. Look at verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions. How does Paul know that their faith is growing? He was very likely getting reports of how the Thessalonians were continuing to meet together to worship Jesus how they were serving the city despite all the persecution. And there is a simple truth here that is so relevant to all of us. Faith cannot be measured without hardship. Your faith and mine cannot be measured except we walk through seasons of hardship and see how our faith holds out. You see, if life is all comfortable and all of your needs and my needs are being met and we do not have any hardship or difficulty, then there is really no way of knowing how strong and how mature our faith is. It is only through trials and hardships that we can see for ourselves the maturity 
of our faith. You cannot measure the strength of your faith without hardship. I cannot measure the strength of my faith without hardship. Aji and I, we personally had a, a very difficult week. Emotionally, this has perhaps been uh, the most difficult week uh, for us this year. And initially, we were feeling, I was feeling crushed and sad. But slowly, as I was able to, in God's grace, shift my gaze away from the hardships and the struggles and the questions and the doubts, as I began to look at Jesus, I, I was able to kind of measure um, how strong or how weak my faith is. If you are like me, if you're also going through a season of hardship, could it be, could it be that this is an opportunity that God is giving you to test your faith in Jesus? If you want to know how strong your faith is, you have to wait for hardships to find you. Oh, it will find you. Hardships have a way of finding all of us. The hardships and persecution we are talking about found the Thessalonians. They endured affliction. They endured persecution. They could have grown discouraged. They could have grown bitter, but instead they grew, they grew as Paul tells us, in their faith in Christ and in their love for one another, one another. And as they persevered, they grew in hope in Jesus. If you remember from the earlier series, faith, love, and hope are themes, very strong themes, that Paul is addressing in the first book of Thessalonians. And we see that's being repeated here again, here one more time. In the Old Testament, there was a very good man named Job. Job was good in every way. And God had blessed Job in every way. One day, the devil told Job, the devil told God, that Job is good in every way only because God has blessed him in every way. Good family, good career, good increments, Aesop's perhaps, good home, good, good everything. Take away all of these things, the devil taunted God, take away all these things and Job will curse you. God agreed to the test. And so Job endured unbearable hardship, but his faith held firm. Job came out victorious. It is only through the trial and through the hardship that Job's faith was tested, proved strong to the glory of God. You see, the testing of Job's faith, the testing of your faith, is not just about your life and mine. The testing of our faith holds at stake the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, who redeemed us by laying his life down for us. Some of you in New City are walking through the path of Job right now. Some of you are facing enormous hardship at work. Are you growing bitter and discouraged? Or are you growing in your faith, hope, and love? 
Some of you are single parents. And you've not grown bitter. You've not grown discouraged. You have grown in your faith, hope, and love to the glory of Jesus. Some of you are perhaps going through challenges in marriage. You have not given up. You have not grown bitter. You are growing in faith, hope, and love to the glory of Jesus. There are some couples here, like everywhere else, who have been waiting for a child for many years. You've been praying. And you have not grown bitter. You have not grown discouraged. On the contrary, you have grown in your faith, hope, and love. And this is to the glory of Jesus. It is only when we walk through hardships that we really get to measure our faith. In verse 4 in the passage we are reading, Paul applauds the Thessalonians for being steadfast in their faith. Uh, The word steadfast in the biblical context is not often understood uh, in our world. In the New Testament, uh, the origin of the word steadfastness or the word steadfast is is the characteristic of a man or a woman who is not swerved from his purpose by even the greatest trials or suffering. Think of it this way. Imagine you're sailing in in a small boat and a storm hits you. A raging storm hits you. And there are three ways in which each of us could respond. First, we could just give up and and let the wind blow us wherever. You just hope for the best. We give up. That's the first response. The second response is we drop anchor and we try our best to hold our ground till the storm blows over. The third possibility is something else altogether. The third possibility is that undaunted by the storm, we steer toward the destination that we set off with, even in the storm. It doesn't matter which way the storm is blowing, we steer purposefully towards our destination. This is what the biblical word steadfast means. Not passive, but active, moving towards taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. And and this steadfastness reflects a quiet strength. This is not bluster and noise. This is deep strength in the inner man and the inner woman in Christ Jesus. Do you have this? How do you respond when the storms of life hit you? Have you yet measured the maturity of your faith in Jesus in the middle of the storms and hardship of life? And this is the first test of faith that Paul is inviting us to walk through in this first chapter of Second Thessalonians. Are you growing in your faith, love, and hope in times of hardship? And here's the second test that Paul invites us to consider in these first 10 verses 
in 2 Thessalonians. The second test. Does the justice of God bring you comfort and consolation in your hardship? Does the justice of God bring you comfort and consolation in your hardship? As we've been seeing, the Thessalonian church was being hit by, by vicious persecution. And in response, Paul uses a very surprising path to comfort them. In, in the midst of persecution, Paul is asking the Thessalonians to find comfort and consolation in the justice of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay the afflictions of those who afflict you, repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, the second coming. This is something, this is very interesting. When someone persecutes us or when we uh, go through what we perceive to be unfair hardship, each of us, all of us, we passionately cry out for justice. We want God to step in and, and, and address the situation. We call for the justice of God. But in doing that, we often commit two mistakes. First, the first mistake we make in, in our passion in, in those situations is we have already finished judging those who are persecuting us. We have left nothing for God. Second, we passionately demand that God judge them right now. And, and in these emotions that, that understandably well up from within us, we are forgetting two crucial truths about God's justice. The first truth about God's justice is very simple. Only God can judge. Only God can judge. Only God can judge because of the simple principle of justice that the only the faultless and only the blameless can judge. A judge who has committed a crime is immediately disqualified. He is not fit. He is not worthy to pronounce any judgment if he has done a crime himself. And so people who sin which is basically every single one of us, we are not qualified to judge anyone. And so only a holy God has the authority to judge. None of us are without sin. And so however fair our case may be, however justified we may be in a specific situation, even though none of us are ever 100% right in any situation, even if we are, the rest of our lives are hardly perfect. And so, you and I, we don't have the right to judge anyone. Only a holy, blameless, faultless God can judge. And so, the Apostle Paul is calling the Thessalonians to find comfort in the truth that God will judge. 
But in our emotions, when we are persecuted or when we go through hardship, there is a second truth that we forget. If only God can judge, then only God can decide the time of judgment. If only God can judge, then only God can decide the time of judgment. In verses 6 and 7, Paul is telling us that only God can judge and God will bring all things to judgment when Christ comes again. When someone persecutes us or causes trouble or hardship, we want to take judgment into our own hands, don't we? But Paul is reminding us, God is reminding us that we need to wait patiently and faithfully for Christ to come again because God is going to judge all things and all people only when Christ comes again. So when someone wrongs you, are you impatient to, to respond in your own way or do you find comfort and consolation that only a holy God can, will, and can and will judge all things when Christ comes again. And so our understanding of our understanding and our response to the justice of God on God's terms is a good measure of our maturity in Christ. Are we, are we willing to entrust all judgment to God on His terms? That is a good reflection of our maturity in Christ. Let me give, me, let me give us a, an incredibly powerful example of how believers, of how followers of Jesus can find comfort and consolation in the justice of God. Finding comfort and consolation in the justice of God. Between the years 1525 and 1866, 10 million Africans were kidnapped and sold as slaves in America. 10 million. For over 300 years, these Africans, who are now Americans as well, went through hell. Even though a lot of them had become believers, so-called Christian slave owners and slave traders treated them horribly. So let me read a one historical account that kind of summarizes what happened. I'm reading this verbatim. Interactions between enslaved people and Christian missionaries led to the spread of Christianity among black Americans. Many slave owners initially resisted these evangelistic efforts partially out of concern that if enslaved people became Christians, they would see themselves as their owner's equals. By 1706, this fear by slave owners had had spurred legislation in six colonies, laws in six colonies, declaring that an enslaved person's baptism did not entail freedom. There were laws passed that if a slave was baptized, he is still not free. 
In addition, many enslaved people who did become Christians had to deal with restrictions by masters who forbade them from attending church or prayer meetings. To get around these restrictions and, and for alternatives to sermons by white clergy asking them to obey their owners, justifying slavery, many African-American Christians held secret services with distinctive styles of praying, singing, and worship. These services were typically held in their cabins in secret or nearby woods, ravens and, and thickets in the, in the forest. If you've seen movies like Emancipation or, or 12 Years a Slave or some of the movies in that genre, you will see how cruelly these African-Americans were treated as slaves for, for, for three centuries. Three centuries. They were treated so cruelly and yet they found comfort and consolation in the justice of God. For 300 years, their faith only grew. Their trust in Jesus grew. How, how do they manage it? How could this be? 300 years, you and I, one bad increment, and we are screaming injustice. We're looking for another job already. 300 years, waiting and finding comfort and consolation, believing that one day when Christ comes again, he will judge all things. These African-American slaves entrusted themselves to the justice of God for 300 years. And now, 200 years after slavery is gone, have all wrongs been set right? No, not yet. Everything will be set right only when Christ comes again. And so these African-American slaves found great comfort and, co and consolation in the justice of God on God's terms. They found consolation in the justice of God on God's terms, not on their terms. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight injustice. I'm not saying slaves shouldn't fight for their freedom. Not at all. We should. Which is why we are so involved in the work in Severa in Kamathipura and the Red Dyke District, trying to bring freedom to women who are enslaved. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight. What I am saying is that we should fight every injustice, knowing fully well that all injustice will be fully wiped out only when Christ comes again. We fight knowing that we can help a little, but ultimately all freedom, all goodness, all beauty will be restored only when Christ comes again. You and I, we are privileged people in the light of the rest of India. And the hardship and persecution that we may face is nothing compared to what this people group endured for 300 years. And we have much to learn from them. Lastly, where did these African-American slaves, where did they find their faith to endure? What inspired them? What gave them the strength 
to trust in the justice of God? What gave them the strength to persevere and wait for the justice of God? And like them, where can we find our faith in times of hardships? The answer is a simple one. Jesus gives us faith. Christ gives us faith. You see, God does not ask us to do anything that Christ has not already done on our behalf. God does not ask us to do anything that Christ has not already done on our behalf. So if God is asking us to trust all justice to Him and in His timing, then Jesus has already done that on our behalf. There is this beautiful verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 23, that really captures this. Speaking about Jesus, this says, when they hurl their insults at Christ, when they hurl their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When Christ suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, as we sung, entrusted Himself to God the Father who judges justly. You see, God is only asking us to do in entrusting Him to judge all things what Christ has already done on our behalf. There is more. Look, look at the next verse, verse 24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. By the wounds of Christ, we have been healed. We need healing for many things. This verse doesn't only talk about physical healing. It talks about healing for many things. We need healing for many things. We need healing for many sins. And one of the deepest sins that you and I need healing is for our inability to trust God. We need healing for our inability to trust God. The wounds of Christ bring healing to our sin of not trusting God. We all struggle to trust God. We all struggle to trust the goodness of God. We all struggle to trust the justice of God. But by his wounds suffered in his death on the cross, Jesus offers us healing for our inability, for our sin of not trusting God. You see, Jesus was unjustly beaten. He was unjustly shamed, unjustly stripped, unjustly insulted, unjustly slapped, unjustly spat upon, and unjustly, ultimately, crucified to death. And we are called to see the injustice of man in the death of Christ so that we can see the glorious and ultimate justice of God in the resurrection of Christ. We're called to see the injustice of man in the death of Christ so that we can also see the glorious 
and ultimate justice of God in the resurrection of Christ. In the death of Christ, we see the injustice of man, but in the resurrection of Christ, we see the justice of God. By his wounds, we are healed. As we see the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we grow in our ability to trust God. To trust God at whatever our situation in life or however long, when Christ comes again, when the one who died on our behalf and rose again, when he comes again, he will judge all things. And in him, when he comes again, every injustice will be wiped out and the world will become beautiful once again. This is the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. This is the hope the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians is calling us to discover and grow in. Let us pray. Father, we repent. We come in repentance, Lord. Uh, just shocked at how uh, little our view of justice is. How narrow our view of justice is. Anything that happens to us, we immediately scream injustice. But we become so dulled and numb and indifferent to so much injustice that's happening around the world. And so we repent, Lord. And come, we come to you, Lord Jesus, asking for faith, faith to endure hardship, faith to entrust all things to Christ Jesus, who will one day come and judge all things. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who are explorers here, the questions of justice and why is there suffering in the world and all of that, we pray. Would you help Christ Jesus as the only true and meaningful answer to all of those questions? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, help us to grow in our Christ-likeness in entrusting God to judge all things. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.